This is The Trip That Changed Me, a podcast about trips that transform. I'm Esme Benjamin, editor of Full-Time Travel, and every other Thursday, I'll be sitting down with entrepreneurs, writers, entertainers, and everyday adventurers to discuss a journey that shifted their mindset, ignited a new calling, expanded their heart, or ushered in a new chapter. My guest Mallory Solomon started out in the advertising industry, working for some of the biggest brands in the world, growing agencies, and honing her storytelling skills. She was killing it by anyone's standards, but as we all know, success doesn't necessarily equate to happiness. Feeling burned out, Mallory booked a much needed vacation to Morocco with some friends. It was there, while shopping for rugs in the souk, that she was struck by an idea that would eventually become Salam Hello, a textile company which champions the women artisans behind the rugs and pays them fairly for their work, something that's outrageously rare in the current system. Salam Hello is also committed to giving back 10% of all profits to the villages these women are from, providing them with resources they lack and helping them go from strength to strength. I sat down with Mallory, who now splits her time between New York and Marrakesh, to find out what it takes to start a business like hers and why Morocco is the place that makes her feel grounded and calm. Mallory Solomon, welcome to The Trip That Changed Me. Thank you for having me. I'm glad you could be here. I know you just got in from Morocco. Yes. I like to hit the ground running, though. Yeah? Because it makes me get over my jet lag. So you split your time between New York and Morocco now? I do, yeah. Marrakesh? So I have an apartment in Marrakesh, yes. But I, I usually spend most of my time outside of Marrakesh. But it's a good central hub just because that's where the airport is and... A lot of other things. And you're a California gal originally. I am. I'm from Southern California. So right in between Santa Barbara and LA, 10 minutes inland from Malibu. Sounds way cooler than <laughs> what it is. It's a suburban monstrosity. <laughs> and I know that you were very entrepreneurial from a very young age. Can you tell me some of the business ideas that baby Mallory had? <laughs> yeah, for sure. The first one, I remember I was in a restaurant in San Francisco. So I, I have two older brothers and I had very strange eating habits as a kid. And I really loved dipping bread into apple juice. It sounds disgusting <laughs> even now, but when I was a kid, I loved it. But my brothers would like incessantly make fun of me and so I remember I was sitting at a restaurant and they were making fun of me and I was like just just wait one day I'm going to open up a dipping restaurant and you're going to be so jealous and it will be like apple juice and bread but also like french fries and ketchup like and mayonnaise like anything you wanted that obviously didn't come to fruition <laughs> and then yeah like it just it, it evolved from there so when I was like when I hit a wall like four years into advertising maybe I had a dream of opening a taco stand in Greenpoint. Oh, I live in um, Greenpoint. Oh, really? Yeah. So right where the pencil factory is, uh -huh. there was like no food there, no drunken food. And I was like, I had just perfected a carnitas recipe. And I was like, I would make such a killing. And I like looked into regulations for the uh, a truck. and But I don't know, nothing happened. I didn't do it for some <laughs> reason. Like there was always some thing that like I, I stopped before I wrote a business plan or I stopped before I like took that next step. And so I always wanted to do it, but I just like never actually made the move. And then the last thing I was really obsessed with, and I still am, um, are, is opening my own bodega 
Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> yeah. So you don't have bodegas in California. It's like they're called liquor stores, but that's just where you go to buy liquor. It's not like the I love a bodega here because I think it's the pinnacle of what I wanted to do in advertising, which was create loyalty and like this brand loyalty and this like uh, this relationship you have with your bodega owner or the workers there is like incredible. And they they feel like your extended family and you will go an extra block to go to the one that you like the most. You, you go out of your way mm-hmm. to go to your favorite bodega. And so I really wanted to do that. I also just like love grocery stores. Um, <laughs> and so, I'm, but I'm, you know, it to make a successful bodega is it's not right. like a very lucrative business unless you're like a drug facade, which a lot of them are. <laughs> um, so I will do that eventually. Yeah, but I haven't done it. It's on the list, but you know where else has bodegas? Interestingly, Cuba. Really? Mm-hmm. Huh. And they're called the bodega. And okay. that's where people go to pick up their government issued supplies like oh, flour, really? sugar, all of that stuff. Yeah. yeah. It's funny because there's a bit like over the last two to three years, but there's been like a lot of quote unquote bodega companies opening. Like there is these two. Like reimagining bodegas. Yeah. There's these like two tech guys mm-hmm. that decided to reinvent the bodega, but it ended up just being a vending machine. Like, oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> it was like, we're going to come up with this thing where you put a, you put a big machine in these, in, in like the lobby of an apartment building and it has anything you could want. And I'm like, Hey, FYI, that's a vending machine, and it's already been around for a while. And, <laughs> and that's the opposite of what you're saying. Which exactly. Is on the community aspect. Exactly, exactly. So, you know. So you had lots of ideas. Yes. So, But it's interesting that you found your way into advertising, because that's obviously, even if it's not directly related to entrepreneurialism, it kind of is, because you're learning exactly how to build a brand. Yeah. So how did you end up in that industry? Yeah, I mean, that's super interesting that you say that, because I don't think I got to that realization until after I left, Mm. or maybe, you know, a couple of months before I left. I went into advertising because I loved pop culture, and I thought that that was a way that I could be a part of it. Uh, I watched this movie that Jennifer Aniston was in um, and she worked in advertising in New York. And I was like, oh, that looks so cool. Let's do it. (laughs) Glamorous. Yeah. Jen Aniston did it. (laughs) And yeah, from when I was in college to when I graduated, I was like, I'm going to be working at an ad agency. And I moved to New York from California, just assuming that was what I was going to be doing, but having no idea like what aspect of the agency world I was going to work in. So I was lucky enough to like find, I, I just applied to multiple multiple agencies and, you know, as fate had it, like I, I started working at an agency that is amazing. I actually met with the owner. He was in Morocco the last, for Thanksgiving and we had oh, lunch there. Yeah. So it was, I mean, he's still to this day is like an amazing mentor, but I ended up going into like the strategy account fields within advertising and, and just stuck there because I liked it. And then, uh, as people who don't know strategy, can you explain strategy? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Mm. Yes. So when clients come to you, it's the strategist is responsible for finding what the white space is and then coming up with the positioning for that client to get behind, to connect with the consumer within that white space that we found. Not like the best description, but it's like identify the problem with the business and yes, then how you can solve yes, it. Yes, that's it. You're much more articulate than I am right now. <laughs> no, about you that. did great. Yeah, yeah. Sadly, I spent 10 years in the industry and you're better. Yes. But uh, the last four years of my tenure in advertising, I was running the business development team at an agency called 72 and Sunny. Um, and 
what when I look back on it, I I, I was like, what do, what is my skill? What do I what am I doing here? I'm just like making decks and presenting them to clients. But like, if I were to ever leave, what would I what would I be doing? And then when, once I look back on it, you're exactly right. I was in these short stints of doing the business development thing of getting these new clients to come to 72, we had to prove in like, you know, three to six week timeframes that we could solve what your position, your positioning challenge was. We could find what the real target that you needed to address was, and then we could come up with a full campaign. So I was, I was building businesses uh, in these like, you know, three to six week chunks over, you know, four years. So it was like little entrepreneurial uh, things over, you know, that four year time frame. Yeah. So I, I'm, and, and I loved it because you could be a part of so many different categories. Mm. So like the last year I did tech, fast food, uh, condoms or sexual wellness, I guess is sexual the, wellness is the is better way term. is the better term. <laughs> Genetics, like so many different fields that I would have never uh, been able to think about if I was just focused on, mm. you know, one client, one aspect that and building that thing. So yeah, I mean, it, 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 it really helped shape continually to continue to shape my desire to grow my own, to have my own business. I have a lot of, my husband's in advertising. Oh, He's a okay. creative copywriter. Oh. And I also have a lot of friends who are in the industry. Yeah, yeah, okay. It's just a very um, full on. Oh my God. The, the yeah. schedule is crazy. There'll be yes. weeks where I wouldn't see my husband at all oh, because yeah. he didn't get home from the office yeah. until like 3 a.m. and I was asleep. And then I would leave before he woke up and we'd just be like ships passing in the night. Oh, totally. Um, so did you get to the point where you just felt thoroughly burned out? Oh my out? God, completely, yes. I mean, the industry is so hard. I, I and I don't I don't understand how it got to that point, mm. but it is it is exhausting. And I had a point where, you know, when I would hang out with my friends and they would ask me what was new, I would only talk about work. Mm. And like I, now that I have space from it, I realize that should have been a, a flag of like what was happening in my life. I also felt like I was just like living in New York and not experiencing it. I mean, oh, every day I was like working from at least nine to nine. When I would go home, I would maybe have dinner, but then work again. It's just, it's, it's, it's constant and they, they will take as much as you give. And so I, you know, the last year I had planned three vacations and I canceled all three of them until I went to Morocco. Not because like they asked me to, they probably encouraged me to, but I, the, the type of industry it is, it's like, if you leave, you will get left behind. Right. So it's, it's. It's such a toxic in, environment and the work-life balance is just so off the, the diversity. They claim that they're getting better, but it's still, I, I personally think like so off balance. Yeah. There's just a lot within the industry that needs to change. That said, I still have passion for it. Yeah. I still like it. I, there was some tweet yesterday that I was watching that I was like, this is such a good ad. And I was like, I watched it and I was like, oh, yeah, that is such a great ad. And oh, now man, you have an appreciation cool. for what goes into yes. making the ad, yes. right? Yeah, no, totally. These yeah, things yeah. most people like flick through. I don't want yeah. to watch this or listen yeah, to this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you said that you had to cancel several vacations. Yes. What was different when the idea of Morocco came up? Why did you say, you know what, I'm drawing a line. I'm going to, I'm actually going to go on this Yeah, one. yeah. So I was going to go to Portugal for two weeks and I, it was all by myself. Um, and the day I canceled it, I happened to go to a birthday party for some friends and two of my best friends were going to Morocco and they were like, you should really come with us. And I was like, okay, fine. Yeah, let's do it. At that moment, like I had just like 
I'd reached my burnout period. And so I was like, I cannot, I cannot cancel another thing. Like I have to put myself first. I think the fact that two of my best friends were going with me, like held me accountable at all of the previous trips I had, it was going to be solo. And I was just going to like, you know, travel on my own and figure it out. And so I think the reason I probably would have found an excuse to cancel it again, but they would have been, they, they wouldn't let me, you know, it not, you know, fi- figuratively, they wouldn't, they wouldn't let me. Yeah. I, I mean, and I also think I was just so, I, I was actually looking back on Spotify the other week and I made a p- playlist because it was like my last weekend of work. It was a weekend right before Thanksgiving. I had to work throughout the entire um, weekend before. And I was like, and then I was going to Morocco the day after Thanksgiving. And I remember I made this whole playlist just like calming me down throughout the weekend of work. It was like the chillest music. <laughs> and I, I remember exactly where I was in that moment, just so exhausted, so ready to get away. Um, so there was a point of just like my mental health that I couldn't cancel anything anymore. I, I needed to shut off. You need a break. Yeah. yeah. And so what was the plan for the trip? Were you just going to kind of play it by ear or did you have a set itinerary? So I, a little bit of both. I definitely did not do as much research going into it as, as I probably should have, but I got like a ton of recommendations. And so I did what any, you know, millennial did does. And I put together like a full Google doc and, (laughs) and shared spreadsheet of like every day, what all of us were going to do. But it was still, you know, I still was very naive about what the country was going to offer or could offer. What um, were your expectations? I I don't, you know, whatever Instagram showed me, you know, <laughs> like the beauty of Marrakesh, Shafshawin, the, you know, blue city and, and desert dunes, like everything. My only expectations were what I naively knew about the country. Um, still very excited because <laughs> what the Instagram shows is reality and also amazing. But yeah, I mean, like we, the plan was to go to Marrakesh, then take an overnight train to Tangier, which, you know, is just overnight trains in Morocco. Interesting. I wouldn't recommend it, but you know, it's an experience. (laughs) Then we went to Shafshawan, Fez, Fez to the desert, to the desert back to Marrakesh. And, you know, so it was like a, Mm -hmm. you know, a good amount of travel around (laughs) seeing various different cities and. It just was blown away once I got there. Yeah. How how did it make a really strong impression on you as a country? Yeah. I mean, Marrakesh is it, like your it's like sens- sensory overload. Mm-hmm. I, I and, you know when I went there, I was I was excited. I think like there was, but it still like, felt like a vacation in Marrakesh. I was like, oh, this is a new country. This is great. I don't think I like fully fell in love until uh, I was like driving through the countryside of Morocco where you see like the real Morocco, in my opinion, the Berbers, the villages, like that's when my eyes just started to open and I started to see the world differently. Yeah. I mean, I think the moment I think everything changed was after I spent the night in the desert. I think there's something magical about deserts. Mm. Um, the last like epiphany moment I had as a human was when I was in Israel and I spent the night in the desert there. I think like there's some like, 
there's some soul connecting or something that happens. Um, and I, you know, you're in the the desert, you see so many stars, you're just like, you're laying there. It's just you feel so small. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's, it's a magical feeling. And I think at that moment, things changed. And I just didn't want to leave. Um, and I just started seeing things differently and thinking about things differently and, and thinking about like, oh, man, like, there are quick moments were coming in after that. And, and it just, it felt different. It felt like such a small aspect of the world and such like a narrow focused priority list that I had of like, you know, these caring about if I was going to win some small piece of business for this agency, when there's so much more to the world and so much more that the world had to offer. So yeah, I think after that moment, I, I just saw I approached things differently because it. I, I had a different way of thinking. I had a similar experience. I, I was in Morocco in 2008, yeah. so ages ago now, yeah. but went out to the desert yeah. and me and my friends, I remember we didn't even sleep in the tents in the end. We just yeah. pulled rugs out and just yeah. slept under the stars. Yeah. It was just incredible. Yeah, as you it's say. crazy. Yeah. It just shifts your perspective. Yes, yes. Um, one of the things I love to ask people is where they think they were from in a past life. Yes. Because I feel like sometimes you go somewhere and it feels kind of uncannily familiar yes. for no particular reason, but you're yes. like, I just feel like I've been here before. Totally. And it sounds like maybe Morocco is that place Completely. It's so funny that you asked that. Like I, I've been thinking about this a lot um, for a while now, but one of the clients that I worked on, uh, or yeah, one of the clients that I won for 72 and then worked on for a little bit was 23andMe. And so I did a lot of research around the past of, of how we have migrated and how mm-hmm. you understand what your gene- genealogy is and, and whatnot. And there's a lot of haplogroups, which is like your mother's side, which is how they track most of your DNA right now, uh, that start in like Northern Africa. Um, and then my haplogroup actually starts in Portugal, but you can understand that like, right, it actually probably goes back. I'm a, I'm a Ashkenazi Jew. So there is only so much that you can tell within the detail of that because of the way that we've, that, that community has, has uh, spread out in the world. But I can only imagine that like, you know, we all come from Africa and the fact that the first record of my DNA being in Portugal is so close to like where Morocco is or where mm-hmm. North Africa is. It I know it sounds very cheesy, but I really do believe that, you know, in some past life, I definitely was probably over there. Fascinating. Yeah. I mean, I would love, that would be, I, I wish I could read, or I mean, I can read more about it, but I wish there was more like scientific evidence mm-hmm. around all of that. Maybe there is. I obviously have like not sp- come across it yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That. I mean, I'm sure there's whatever. <laughs> it's a very interesting topic. So I'd love to move on to talk about how you came up with the idea of your business. Salam, yes. hello. Yes. So you're kind of wandering around the souks, doing what people do in Morocco, shopping yes. for textiles. Yes. Um, and yeah, tell me that story. How did yeah. it come about? Yeah. I mean, when you go to a souk, as you know, because you've been there, it is just like, it's crazy. It's like mm-hmm. so many different vendors. And everyone's vying for your attention, yes. trying to get you <laughs> yeah, in. Yeah, yeah. And I was just, I've always been the person probably because I live in Brooklyn and, you know, want to find the place that like, where would the locals go to shop? Right, and, yeah. <laughs> what's, where is the place that's like non-touristy? Um, and so I, I took me a while to finally find somewhere to get rugs. Looking back on it, it still was a very, very touristy shop. 
But um, yeah, I got rugs for myself in Fez. And then I was talking to my brother throughout the entire time who he was still in New York. He's obviously not with me in New York. And he was like, oh, you should get me some too. And I was like, okay, cool. The last couple of days in Marrakesh, I was like, okay, I'm going to go find him some rugs. And that moment when I was in Marrakesh looking for these rugs, like something just didn't feel right. You know, they tell you the story when you go into these rug shops, they always tell you the same thing. They like they they light the rug with the lighter and they're like, smell it. It smells like hair, doesn't it? And you're like, oh, yeah. They're like, yeah, see, it's 100 percent wool. I'm like, "Okay." And then they're like, and the women make it and and we buy it from villages and 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 but it's all men that are selling it. Mm -hmm. And you're like, but where? what there there's some breakdown here like where are the women in the process are they aware of what is happening and then just like the magnitude of rugs that you see in these cities it boggles your mind it's like how how do they how do how are there women that make enough of these rugs that can still then be kept at this price that's really low and so it just it sparked something in me and i was like i i left the country being like something's up, but I didn't necessarily have the idea for Salam Hello at the time that I left the country. And it didn't really come to me until when I got back to New York. And I just started, I bought some books about the history. Cause again, I think going back to like, I was very naive in my expectation about what the country could offer me going in. I didn't do the research then I did it on the other end. Um, and so after reading these books and, and going deeper into the Berber women of how they have been doing this this weaving crafts in 600 BC, passing it down. I started to realize that they were being taken advantage of mm-hmm. um, at its core, right? Like at this at the simplistic explanation, they were being taken advantage of, and the the way that the souks were able to keep the prices down were these like middleman schemes of. You know, these women live five to six hours outside of these bigger cities, sometimes a little bit closer, but mostly the 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 craft, the Moroccan rug that you think of mostly comes from an area that is five to six hours away from the city. They don't have the means like we do in the Western society to to take their things and and go to the city themselves or sell them online. Exactly, exactly. And so they're at the mercy of these middlemen and the middlemen work in groups of five over the course of a couple of days, they end up getting these rugs for like 70 to 90% less than what the women actually wanted. And so one, that's an issue. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The second issue is that these women, in order to keep up with their ability to still provide for their family and still make money, then started cutting um, out like the, the quality of how they make the rugs. So in the in historically they would use their own sheep. Someone within the village would would shave the sheep. They would then cart it, spin it, cart it, brush it, spin it all themselves, and then they would use that to make the rug. But that takes a lot of time, mm-hmm. a lot of labor, and 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 they could sell the 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 wool, the sheep's wool, usually for a higher value than them taking it for their own rug. So in order to keep up with these lower costs, they would go and buy wool from the local markets, undyed and dyed. And what happened was in, for, those, for that wool to be cheaper, it would, it's usually mixed with synthetics. And they usually actually import the wool from like India or not even the country itself. So 
you start getting a less quality Moroccan rug. And it's not even sometimes even made from Moroccan sheep. And then the third thing is like they use dead wool. So the history of, of Moroccan rugs is that you shave the animal, the sheep or the lamb or the camel at a time with, you know, based off the season where you are in the year. Um, but it's to no harm to them, right? It's just part of the process. You grow hair, you shave it. Um, and that that allows for the wool to be healthier and stronger. Now it's always going to shed. It's it's animal fur, hair, like that's going to shed. But what ha- what the, a cheaper way to get it is by killing the animal, uh, shaving it, because then you have the ability to sell the animal for money as well as the wool. Oh, wow. And the having wool from a dead animal, you just automatically like it loses quality. So your rug just sheds so much more. And so, but but it's cheaper. So you see a lot of, you'll see a lot of rugs that are made from dead wool. But you would never know that as the buyer, right? No, I mean. Until you get it home and it's shedding everywhere. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then, you know, because there's so many souks everywhere in these cities, to keep up with the demand, there are actor, uh, factories near outside of Rabat, which is in uh, the northern part of Morocco, that are full of women. They pay them a salary. I'm not sure of the exact salary that they pay them, but they basically just make rugs after rugs after rugs, not necessarily, you know, by looms that aren't set up by hand. There are looms that are set up by the factory and then, you know, the women are still making it, but it loses some of the tradition that was being passed down through the generations. So it's just all of the, these things start to coming to light when I was doing this research. You did a real deep dive. <laughs> yeah, like... Yes. And so I, through all of that research, I wrote a business plan for Salam Hello of like, what if I went to the women themselves, bought directly from them, made sure that for every rug that you purchase, you understand the woman who made it, the story behind it, and understand how she, the process that she put into making it and requiring them to use better quality materials. So making sure that they use the live wool, making sure that we know that either them or someone else in their village did the dyeing. So you know the spice blends that went into it. Um, So that was the original thought. And I went back to Morocco like in February, maybe. So I got back. Which year was this? This year, or yeah, this year. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) So I went there last Thanksgiving. Right. Yeah. So I, it's been almost a year since you yeah. had the first trip. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah, it's crazy. So I went back in February with the business plan written out. Um, and I contacted the one of the drivers that drove me originally from Fez to uh, the desert. And I was like, hey, listen, I have this idea. I need you. Can I set up a seven day tour with you where you take me? I think I know where these villages are that of the women that make it. Can you take me to those villages? I was so naive, very like, thankfully, I was so naive at that moment to have the faith of this strange man driving me solo into these very (laughs) remote villages. But yeah, so I I went back in February and found the women. So you literally just, you just rocked up at the village and said, hey. Yeah, yes. (laughs) Can I talk to you about rugs? Yeah, the first, the first village I went to, I went to this, like, there was a sign that says like, you know, Berber carpets. And I went to it and it was closed. And I was like, oh, okay. And then we were we were walking back to the car, and this woman was coming out of her house, and we just walked up to her. And luckily, the the driver slash turned friend is a 
he's he's Berber, and so he knows how to s- speak the same language as the women. Just like small point, most Moroccans speak or Moroccans speak Arabic. Their dialect is Dajer, but most of the women or all of the women that that make the more traditional Moroccan rug speak Berber, which is a whole different language than Arabic. So hard to learn, trying to learn, but it's very, very hard. There's a real language barrier. Yeah. So it's like, you know, such a language barrier. And my friend, my friend, Abdel Tif, uh, he's, he's Berber. And when they talk to each other, they can pinpoint the exact village that they're from. Cause like every village, every tribe, sorry, has a different dialect of Berber. It's, there's so many layers of translation. So, but yeah, so we started talking to the women and the, they happened to be weaving in their home at that, at that day, they invited us in. I probably spent like two hours with them as they were weaving. We had tea and almonds and bread and like a lot of their other villagers came to the house and we were just talking and they told me they went deeper into the middleman scheme that like I, you know, kind of scratched a little bit at before I went there, but they just started they really opened up. And I think there, if there's one thing about Moroccans, it's like they're so welcoming and like they really just bring you in. And there's this level of like trust that they have this like no barriers where, you know, if you were here, you would never be invited into someone's home. And and if you were, no one would be as open as these women are. <laughs> and it was at that moment I was like, OK, I think I can do this. Like this is this is amazing. Like these I can help these women. I remember I I left the house. I didn't buy anything from them. And I was like, man, they they just fed me all this food, gave me all this tea. And I just like left and I went back to try to give them money just to say thanks. And they're like, no, 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 we can't accept this. We, we didn't give you anything. And I was like, no, no, no. And they're like, no, just come back. Oh, that's lovely. And I was like, oh, my God, this is crazy. This is amazing. Like, I want to help you. So were these ladies very unhappy with the middleman system that's been in place? Or, you know, how do they respond to your concept when you, you're coming saying, I'm going to cut out the middleman, I'm going to help you get a fair price, I'm going to help tell your story as the lady artisans behind these amazing mm-hmm. products? How did mm-hmm. they respond to that? They liked it because I'm paying them a fair wage, right? And so I'm giving them what it what they actually want. I, it's, it's hard for me to understand the level of understanding right. for every single woman weaver. Um, and I guess they have no idea how much they, or they probably don't know how much the rugs are actually being sold yeah. for in the suits of Marrakesh. So they exactly. don't know that how badly they're being paid, actually. Ex- exactly. They just know that they're getting less and less every single time right. they make the rug. But they're they're very happy. <laughs> they they want to weave to sell. Mm-hmm. Like, they are the breadwinners of their family. They take care of the kids. They take care of the husband. They make food for all for everyone. And they're weaving six hours a day. So they really want to continue to make a good living to support their family. So um, they want they want to and and when they weave, they're usually weaving their imagination and they're not really sure what will sell, where the demand is, how who's going to buy and when. So like they, you know, they could be sitting on this inventory for months, years at a time. And so these the women want we've talked together about like they I can help them understand what styles are selling better, what colors are better, you know, like Pantone just released mm. the color of the year. And I was like, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna WhatsApp some of my weavers and be like, listen, blue is gonna be very popular. Can do you wanna make some blue rugs and I'll come check them out and we can, you know, 
figure out how we sell them. So they, they want to know how to sell their products. The business ladies. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so I, I think they they understand that. So when you went back home, were you immediately like, okay, I'm out of advertising. I'm going to quit. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yes. But I didn't quit right away. Okay. Yeah, I I I know I needed a break. But basically what I did was like I I put together all of the things that I I bought I bought five rugs on the in the February trip from the women to test out the idea to see if there was a potential market here in the states for it. And I put together like a test site for Salam Hello and I that went live in May. But I had already made the decision because I my last day at work was the end of May. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but I think once I was putting together the test site and like talking to more people about it, um, I realized I I there was there was a market and a potential for the business. And I really just it it I was happier yeah. doing it. And what's interesting is you said in the beginning that you had had all these ideas and that you'd struggled when it got to yes. making it a business plan. Yes. And for some reason this just flew out yeah. of you. Yeah. Do you think it, it just felt really right? Clearly. Yeah. I mean, a, a lot of people have been like, what, why, what do you love about Morocco? How, like, why this? And it's really hard for me to articulate it. It just, it feels right. I was listening to some TED talk that was like, there's no such thing as writer's block. It's just like figuring out the right time and place for things to let it, things flow through you. And writing the business plan was the easiest thing. I've done. It was, you know, it was easier than any other deck I've put together in advertising. I think it's just because there's, I tapped into some passion. I was in the right, Morocco was the right creative place to inspire me. Um, and instead of trying to like articulate that, I feel like that makes me question my love for it. I should just accept it mm -hmm. and like be present in that moment and be happy that I feel like that. Um, and I just let the creative juice flow through me. Another beautiful thing about travel is that you know, it, it, it creates that headspace for you yes. so that you can actually be more receptive yeah. and ideas can flow into you. you yeah. Know? Yeah. One of the prep questions that I was, I was looking at was like, what, sh what is the one thing that everyone should experience? Mm -hmm. And this is a very privileged answer because we have the ability to get away and check out. But, um, you know, coming from a Western world, like the, the ability to walk away from your day to day, shut off your phone and just experience life and be present is like such a magical thing that everyone needs to experience because it just resets you as a human. You know, you you get so lost in the day to day um, and very, very small things feel so amplified. Um, and when you step away and you turn off, you are given the ability to have a, a different perspective on things. Mm -hmm. I fully acknowledge that it's a very privileged answer and we luckily have that ability, but. But you can also, you know, I had another guest on a couple of weeks ago and she, when she goes through a hard time, she's like, it doesn't have to be that you go abroad. Like you could just oh, go totally. to Central Park. You could yes. just go to, you know, just try and take those moments for yourself in your everyday life of to course. experience that yeah. same feeling. Yeah, 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 completely. You don't have to go abroad. Right. I also think there's something when, when you go to Morocco, and I'm sure this is at many other places, I just my eyes open differently when I'm there. So my comparison is to there. They are happy with what they have. 
you know, they... There's a big lesson in that. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. m- and maybe part of that, again, is because they don't have the privilege of having an iPhone 11 and being connected to every single thing possible. So you're always comparing yourself and whatever. But they're they're happy with it, you know, and and they only know what they have in front of them and they make the best of it. And it's, yeah, it's it's a magical thing to see. Um, because they just live their life differently than we do. So now you're splitting your time between two places. Yes. How does that work? What is what does life look like for you now? Yeah, I'm still figuring it out. <laughs> to be honest, I need to get into a better rhythm because I do. Um, I, I I am a person that likes routine, um, and I don't necessarily have that right now. But it's also I think that's it's uh, it's allowing this like state of being uncomfortable is allowing me to continue to grow. I think. But what it looks like right now is like I'm there for a month, I'm here for a month, and it all kind of depends about where I need to be. I, I really I have no idea. Someone, my friend is getting married and she sent around this like Google sheet about like what weekends are best for the bachelorette party. And I was like, I, I don't know where I'm going to be in March. Are you, are you shitting me? I have no idea, but I'll try to make it work. But like just thinking about that, I have no idea where my life will be a month from now. It's freeing, but also so scary. But fun at uh, all those three adjectives combined (laughs) so the big question Mm. how exactly do you feel that this trip has changed you uh it's it's giving me it's given me a different perspective on life I am naturally like running high on anxiety I think from everything that I outlined before I'm an Ashkenazi Jew I live in New York going to therapy is like a a thing that you as a New Yorker talk about, you know? And so uh, it's just like the anxiety runs high in the city, I think for a lot of people and especially for me. Um, And when I live in Morocco, when I, yeah, when I live in Morocco, when I'm there, my, the temperature is just lower. The temperature of my anxiety is just lower. I, I see, I can see anxiety, Mallory, from a different perspective. And that allows me to calm myself down differently. Um, and I think you go back to the night I spent in the desert, right? Where the moment I woke up, I saw the world differently. It allows me to just have perspective on my day to day and like, what is actually causing me this extreme anxiety that I have and taking a moment and seeing it through another world. Thank you so much. You've been really articulate and I really oh, enjoyed thank your you. story. I could speak to you for ages and ages. Yes, I'd love to. Before so. you go, I have some quick fire questions okay, for you. Okay, let's do it. So you already answered the first one. Okay. <laughs> but it's fine. It was the right moment. Okay. Okay, so let's kick it off with what is your best insider tip for Morocco? So something that people might not have heard about. I think uh, if you're looking for good food, make sure you find a home-cooked meal. Ooh, how do you do that? Uh, you contact me. <laughs> you can you if if you have the right tour guide, you can figure it out. Mm-hmm. Um, but the best food in Morocco comes from the mom and the grandma that make it. So you can actually go and eat with these oh, families. Yeah. yeah, you you have to. It's that is how you experience true Moroccan food. And I think get away from Marrakesh. Like it is beautiful. Definitely make sure Marrakesh is a part of your your trip there, but you know, get get outside and spend time in, in the villages because you really see how Moroccans live. 
And if you could teleport anywhere just for the day, where would you go and what would you do? Okay, so I hope this is an okay answer, but I would go to space. Is that Oh, I like that. Okay. No one said that yet. <laughs> I, space is just like it's a, it's so intriguing and interesting. Um, again, like seeing things from a different perspective, right. seeing how small you are. It's like that desert experience, but amplified. Yeah, totally. <laughs> there, space is just like there's so much to discover. So um, if you, if somebody offered you a seat on the first Virgin Galactic flight, would you take it? Yeah, I. So I, the answer would probably be no, because I'm like, there's a, I'm definitely afraid to do that. And like so, maybe have a few test runs. First. Yeah. The reason I say for teleportation, because like for me, when I think about teleportation, it's like all safe. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, Just you're there and back. Right. You know, you can under you understand how you get there and you get back. So knowing that, knowing that I could like pop into space and pop out. <laughs> that's what I want to do. I love it. Yeah. Um, what's the one thing that you never, ever travel without? Um, my phone. Is that bad? Is that a bad answer? No, I mean, that's realistic. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I don't know. I'm like, I wish I had a cooler answer. Like, do you have my any... one diary or something? I just I know. I... Do you have any cool like apps, travel apps that you absolutely just couldn't live without? I mean, no, I'm, I don't know. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm like, I really am not cool when it comes to that. No, I, I mean, know. it's amazing. With things. I like write, I just write in my like notes. I have just a t- my, my notes app has like so many different. Mm-hmm. I write. I like am not a diary person at all, but what I love to do when I'm on planes is like open my notes app and just like write what's on my mind. So I, I guess like that. It's kind of yeah. like morning pages. Yeah, it's yeah. Do you have a favorite hotel? So I personally like staying in like people's homes just to see how like the 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 people live. Do you always do that when you travel? Now I have been. I mean, I I in the majority of my travel before this last year, um, a lot of it was paid by work. And so I got to go to some fancy hotels. But like the the hotels that like stand out the most to me are like the small local ones that mm-hmm. like are like bread and breakfast. Yeah, the guest houses like in Portugal, there's this place called Casame, which I'm sure everyone's heard of. But like it's amazing and it's very like small, and intimate. And then and even in like upstate New York, there's this place called the Bruce which is like a bread and breakfast. They have an amazing tasting menu dinner that you have. And it's just like on this like big piece of land. Sounds great. Uh, Yeah. I want to like, I want to kind of recreate that in Morocco a little bit, but we'll see. That's your next. That's my next (laughs) next thing. Yeah. Yeah. What is your favorite way to spend a long haul flight? So, I mean, I was just on one yesterday and I watched, I like watching rom-coms. Same. <laughs> so I watched The Devil Wears Prada for like the millionth time yesterday. <laughs> but I love catching up on like 80s rom-coms that I never watched or re-watching, you know, ones that I was obsessed with growing up. But yeah. that's what that's what I really I love doing that. And gentle then, comedy. Yeah, yeah. We need. It's like the comfort of knowing what's gonna happen <laughs> in like this when you're flying in the steel tube through the air you know which is just such such a weird concept to just like flying is. is just like so nonchalant now and so I think you know watching a a cozy little rom-com makes you feel comfortable in the sky agreed um what's the best souvenir you've ever purchased on a trip Ooh, I mean I guess a rug because it started everything for mm-hmm. me what um, was your first rug like the one that you bought I mean I trip? still have it 
Um, it was very, very colorful. It was a boucherette rug. And so it's like those are rugs that are actually not made from wool. It's made from torn clothes. Um, they tend to be col more colorful because it's made from clothing. And so like a lot of the natural dyes that you use for wool, like you get brighter colors because of that. Um, so yeah, that, and it's, yeah, I love, I love that rug, even though it doesn't fully live up to the Salamello mission because I have no idea who made it and all that stuff. Um, and now I just use it for like events for people to walk on because I don't cherish it as much, but it was the thing that started everything for me. And which destination is top of your bucket list for 2020? So I have a ton, a lot in Africa because I'm there so often now I want to like travel more. So I really want to go to Zimbabwe. Uh, yeah, I just, I really, I've wanted to go there for a while. But then I also want to go to Jordan. It, it, oh, yeah. I mean, a lot of the pictures I see of Jordan remind me a lot of Morocco. But it just seems like that place that maybe was Morocco in 2008. Maybe. Right. You know, like, I want to go there before it makes the turn of, like, being, tourism. Yeah, being kind of where Marrakesh is now. Um, it looks beautiful. Those those two places are top of mind. But again, like the Canary Islands is so close to Morocco, like I need to just get on a flight. <laughs> so, yeah. Wonderful answers. Thank you so oh, much. Thank you. Um, it was so, so lovely talking to you. Enjoy your time in New York and I hope you get some rest later today. <laughs> thank you. Yes, we'll see. <laughs> Probably not. But you need to come back and visit. I know. I do need to come back. Yes. Good news if you're based in NYC, because Mallory has some pop-up stores in the pipeline. Follow at underscore salam hello underscore on Instagram for updates on those. And if you live elsewhere, you can find out more about the company or make a purchase by visiting salamhello.com. One more thing before you go about your day. Full-Time Travel recently added an amazing travel advisor to our team, and I want to take a minute here to shout her out because booking through an advisor is such a travel hack, it's crazy more people don't know about it. Her name is Chelsea Martin. She's an affiliate of Embark and Virtuoso, and she's also a travel influencer in her own right. You can find her on Instagram at Passport to Friday. Chelsea has amazing relationships with hotels, tour operators, and locals all over the world. And not only will she sort the logistics and take all the stressful planning off your hands, she also scores insane perks at no extra cost to you. Think room upgrades, free cocktails, spa discounts, and late checkouts to name just a few. So whether you want to book an extravagant honeymoon or just want to secure the best hotel for your budget, Chelsea has you covered. Just drop her an email at chelsea at fttadvisor.com. That's chelsea at fttadvisor.com and start planning your dream trip with VIP perks today. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. I hope you liked it. I'll be back in two weeks' time to share more inspiring travel stories. And in the meantime, you can learn more about us by visiting fulltimetravel.co or following us on Instagram at full underscore time underscore travel. If you have a story you want to share on the trip that changed me, drop us a line. And please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so we can keep this adventure going. 